Well, we're going to continue to go through the gospel according to Luke this morning. We're going to be in uh, chapter 9, looking at the, the first uh, 27 verses or so. But I don't want you to turn there just yet. Um, if you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to, to begin in the Old Testament, and, uh, and we're going to read something together. I'm going, to, I'm going to read it out loud to you. You can choose to read along with me, or you can look at the words on the screen, or you can just close your eyes and listen. But the reason why we're starting here in, uh, in Isaiah is because there's something that Isaiah says that is so complementary to what Luke writes in Luke 9 that it just sort of expands the experience, if you will. Like, think of uh, like chocolate and peanut butter. Like, on their own, really good. Taken together, really good. You know what I mean? And so, like, I would encourage you this week, like, seriously, lay Isaiah 55 down and lay Luke 9 down and sort of digest on them together, chew on them together, and, and just see how, how beautiful and, and flavorful and, and, and just mm, good they are. Um, and so uh, what, I, what I love about God's word is that even though here you have Isaiah and he's writing hundreds of years before Luke, that the amount of time that separates these two authors, because of the author behind them, is the same. There's this unified beauty to it. And so I'm going to read Isaiah 55 and, uh, and, and listen or read along uh, with me. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, or your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, and a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty." but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah says things like, he who has no money, come by and eat. We're actually going to see that played out in Luke 9 this morning. He says, incline your ear and come to, to me. Hear that your soul may live. As Jesus is going to proclaim the words of life. 
And, and hear this, this is what Isaiah says. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You see, inherent within uh, the, the, this exhortation is, is really two things. The first, there is an invitation. Isaiah is inviting us to seek the Lord and to call upon him. There's an invitation. This morning, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna look at Luke 9 and we're gonna see these two levels uh, uh, of the, or two layers of this passage. And then on one layer, we're gonna see these disciples um, as they, they follow after Jesus. And we're gonna watch as they grow and as they mature and as they, they gain in their knowledge and their understanding of who Jesus is and what he is all about. We're gonna see this process of discipleship happen, this process of spiritual maturity take place and we're invited to take part in it. We're gonna see this invitation part. But, but there's also something else here. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, implying that there can be a moment or a point in time where he can't be found or where he won't be near. There's a warning here. And Jesus is going to foretell and he's going to foreshadow two different days of judgment where someone or some persons are going to stand before an authority and be condemned. And there's a warning that we'll look at this morning. And so, uh, I'm going to pause and pray before we dive in. And will you pray with me? Will you pray for, for two things this morning? First of all, pray that you hear the welcome. That, that you hear Jesus calling you and inviting you in. Right? Pray for, for your own ears to hear that, that invitation. Um, secondly, pray for anyone who might be here who needs to heed the warning. Needs to hear the warning. That we would hear that hear it in love and hear Jesus calling them. Heavenly Father, uh, this time is yours. We pray that uh, you would speak loudly and clearly. We pray that, uh, that we would leave here um, with joy and peace, <clears throat> with greater love and understanding of who you are. And I pray that, uh, that your word in us would make a difference in the world. Help us to follow you. Help us to lay down our lives, pick up our crosses, and follow you daily. And what all of that means. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to look at this first surface level layer of the development of these disciples. And before we get into Luke 9... I want to kind of remind us of, of where these disciples have been, have been. Like at the beginning of Luke, Jesus calls these people, these individuals, to drop their nets or to drop whatever it is that they're doing in their careers and in their lives and their families and to just follow him, and they do it. And when, when, when they begin to follow Jesus, they don't completely understand who he is. They might look at Jesus as like a rabbi. They might see him as, a, as an important teacher. They might see something you know, uh, uh, dramatic about him or something that they, they desire to, 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 to learn more about, but they don't fully understand who he is or what he's come to do but they're following him anyway. So they begin to follow him, and then in Luke chapter six, we see Jesus take this night of prayer. He sets aside his whole night to go to the Father in prayer because the next day, he's gonna look at this large number of people who's following him, following him and, he, and he's gonna select from them 12 apostles. Essentially what Jesus is doing is he's training his replacements. 
At one point, Jesus' mission on earth will be done, and it will be in the hands of these apostles. These people will go and make disciples who make disciples. If you and I are sitting here today, it's because Jesus chose these 12 guys that eventually leads to our own discipleship. And so uh, he, he chooses these 12 guys and then um, he launches into what's called the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, that's the latter part of Luke 6. We skipped over that. Now I'm really looking forward to, uh, to what's going to happen when we come back to it because we'll come back to it at the end of June and the first three weeks in July and I'm not going to be preaching. There's going to be four individuals who took a, a preaching course that, that we gave last year and these people are not professional Christians. These guys are engineers. These guys are, are, in, are marketing and, and software and like they're, they're men who are very, very smart and who love Jesus, but they're not what you call professional Christians. And, and I love the, this, the, this truth that, that the word of the God hasn't been put into the hand of some sort of professional Christian type person. All right, so we get to hear them preach the Sermon on the Plain. So the disciples, they continue to follow Jesus. They're experiencing, you know, not only his teaching on the kingdom of heaven, not only are they experiencing um, uh, his, him healing people and casting out demons, but they're just getting to live life with him and follow him as he goes. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus sort of, he, he puts on this, this course and what it means to, to hear the word of God and be changed by the word of God. And the course sort of is laid out like this. It begins with a large group lecture. There's a ton of people who come to Jesus and he teaches them and he teaches them in a form of a parable. In other words, it's a story that um, is a big metaphor for something else, but he doesn't explain it. And apparently they don't care. They haven't really come for the story. They haven't really come to hear from Jesus. They've come to see the show that Jesus is gonna put on and healing people and casting out demons. Well, in a smaller group setting, Jesus takes this course into a small group discussion with his disciples, and he explains the parable to them. He expounds on it, teaches them more about what it means to accept the word of God and to, and to, to experience its power. And then he leaves the classroom. He takes them out of the classroom, and last week we saw this, this sort of practicum he puts them through, practical application. And there are these, these four instances where the, the power of God's word is put on display. And the first one is they're on this boat on the, on the Sea of Galilee, and this big storm comes up, and Jesus rebukes the storm. And the question that the disciples ask is, who is this that even nature obeys him? And then they land in this, this region known as the, the, the land of the Gerasenes, and they encounter this man who is possessed literally by hundreds of demons. Hundreds of demons. And, and they come to Jesus, and they, they fall on their knees and tremble before Jesus. And sort of the, the unwritten question there is, who is this that even makes the supernatural tremble and obey? And then they, they encounter this woman who has this bleeding disorder for 12 years, and she's spent her life savings on doctor after doctor after doctor. And yet Jesus heals her. And, and interestingly enough, he actually doesn't heal her with a word. She touches him. Power goes out of him, and she's healed. But the, the implied question is, is, who is this who can cure the incurable, who can heal what, what we can't heal? And then, of course, the, chapter 8 uh, closes with the, the raising of this girl from the dead. Jesus takes three of his disciples into this upper room and, and there's this body of this little girl who's passed away and Jesus reaches down and he takes her hand and he raises her up and she comes back to life. And the implied question is, who is this? Who can reach into death and bring it back to life? 
The word of God is powerful, and we see this on display. But, but more than that, we see that Jesus is the word of God. He is, he is God's power. He is the word of God. And so there's the natural uh, sta- next stage in this, this course would be a solo. Um, think about, for those of you, anybody a, a pilot? Okay. Nobody wants to raise their hand in church for anything. I get it. Anybody want a million dollars? See? Nobody. There was two. There was two. All right. So um, uh, if, if you want to become a pilot, the first thing you go through is ground school. Right? You, have to, you have to hit the classroom and study the book and learn about lift and drag and wind speed and velocity and, and all of this sort of stuff. Right? You go to ground school. And when you graduate ground school, then you can get in the airplane. But you don't get to fly the airplane yet. You just get to watch somebody else fly the airplane. And you watch how they can control it and how they uh, take off and how they fly and how they land and how they encounter crosswinds and all this other stuff. But if you want to get your license, the next stage is the solo flight where you chart the course, you plan the destination, you take that plane up, you go to that destination, you land, you refuel, and you come back. The solo, in order to prove, like you have to come back in order to graduate. Makes sense, right? So Jesus this morning, he's going to take his disciples into this this next sort of uh, step in their development and growing in, in their knowledge and understanding of who he is and what he's about, he's going to send them out on solos. Now, to be clear, um, Mark says that he sends them out two by two. So they didn't go out alone. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, we don't really find any place where people are sent out alone. But read with me, Luke chapter nine, beginning uh, in verse one, it says, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Okay, so uh, Jesus is giving them power and authority to heal, cast out demons, and proclaim the kingdom of God. Power and authority. Do you think these guys are ready for this? You think that they, they're at this stage in, 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 their, in their journey of following after Jesus, we saw last week, right, that there's a storm that comes on the boat, and what is their response? It's to freak out. We're all gonna die. Like, that's their response. There's a lot of immaturity still happening here. There's a lot of faithlessness that still exists. In like, are they really at a point where they should be accepting power and authority from God? Uh, when I was 15 and a half, I got my driver's permit. And, uh, and for me, in, in the era in which I grew up in, uh, your parents taught you how to drive. And so when you had your learner's permit, it was your parents who taught you how to drive, and you learned how to drive your parents' cars. Uh, my mom had a 1985 uh, Mustang convertible GT with a 5-liter v- V8. Now, some of you have heard of uh, a, 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 a vanilla ice. And... Vanilla Ice wrote a famous song called Ice, Ice Baby. And in that song, the lyrics go, rolling in my 5.0 with my rag top down so my hair can blow. Okay. That was my mom's car. That was, I, I was rolling. Anyway, so one day, uh, by the way, like I, I, my, both of my parents taught me how to drive. My, my mom taught me how to drive with anxiety. 
uh, she would be in the car and she would gasp and grab the dash. She, she was that kind of, uh, of, of instructor. My dad was so even keel. My dad was so melt, so calm. So I'm, I'm in the car with my dad, I'm driving, we're coming back from driving and, and we're pulling into the garage. And, uh, and, and you know how, how uh, quickly um, a, a Mustang with a five liter V8 can accelerate? Do you, do you, have you experienced that? It, it can accelerate quite quickly. Um, I had my foot on the brake pedal and I slipped off the brake pedal and I punched the gas and we went into the kitchen. Uh, it was very fortunate that nobody was in the kitchen at the time. On the other side of the wall, there was a, a stand with a big microwave on it, and, uh, and that, that, that thing went flying across the kitchen. If, if anybody had been in the sink, they would have been killed by a microwave. And so I, I, I stopped the car. At this point, I probably had both feet on the brakes, and I'm, I'm gripping the steering wheel, white-knuckled, and, and there, there's my dad, just like so calm. Just like so, just like... Okay. Put it in reverse. You know? That was his... It's like, like I just like hopped over a curve or something. I drove the car into the kitchen. So um, I got my license, and um, we had finished restoring my first car. And, um, and, and a couple of weeks after the car was done and I had my license, I wrecked the car. And, and so guess what car I got to drive while my car was being fixed? My mom's Mustang. And, and, and so you, you got to look at this and, and look at my parents and think to yourself, like, is that really wise? <laughs> like, there's a certain amount of power. And, and you're given that power to this kid, and he just left with two of his friends. Like, is that, you think that's wise? To, to turn over that kind of power to somebody. You know, the truth is, is um, if I hadn't been trusted, if, I, if my parents hadn't given me that responsibility and that power, um, I wouldn't be the fantastic driver that I am today. I'm, and I don't, I don't want to be prideful about it, but I'm really good. Like, I tell almost everybody on the road how much better of a driver I am. Um, but if I didn't have that experience, if somebody didn't give me that power to begin with, how, how would I be developed? And, and the same is true of these disciples. These disciples aren't ready. Their faith isn't fully formed. They're not spiritually mature. They don't know who Jesus is or what he's about. Like, they're, they're learning. They're growing. They're following Jesus. But they're not there yet. But Jesus is still giving them power and authority. Uh, look at verse 3. He says, and, uh, and he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Um, so he's sending them with power and authority, but otherwise they're empty handed. Don't take a staff. A staff would have been something they might use for protection, physical protection. Don't take a staff, don't take a bag. You and I, if we're going to go somewhere, even overnight, we're going to take a bag with at least a toothbrush and our allergy medication in it. Something. We're going to take, he's, no bag. No bag. No bread. No food. Not even a sandwich. No money. You can't even buy a sandwich. No money. 
And lastly, he says, don't take a second tunic. Now, a tunic was the garment that was worn next to the skin underneath the cloak. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't even take a change of underwear. So completely empty-handed, except they're going with the power and the authority that Jesus gives them. So they're going empty-handed into these places in order to heal and cast out demons and proclaim the gospel. And what they're supposed to do is rely on the hospitality of the towns that they're going to, that God will provide for them through the people that they're ministering to. Okay? God will provide through the people they're ministering to. But uh, look at verse 5. It says, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. If you encounter a place that refuses to listen to the message, they, re- they refuse to, uh, to receive healing or to, 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 to hear uh, the, the message of the God. They refuse hospitality to you. They refuse to support you and provide for you. Then what you need to understand is they're not just refusing you. They're not just rejecting you. They're rejecting the one who sent you. They're rejecting me. And as a testimony against them, when you leave that town, shake the dust off of your feet and off of your sandals. A testimony against them. A testimony to who? Who's going to hear that testimony? Who's going to take that testimony into account and in part of, of what judgment? That's kind of hitting that, that second layer that we talked about, and we'll come back to that in a second. So they go out, and they do what Jesus sent them to do. And we see this in, in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So they come back, and they share their success stories. Apparently, they didn't encounter any towns where they were rejected, um, and they're successful. They cast out demons, they healed people, and they proclaimed the gospel. They proclaimed the gospel. Um, Back to verse 6. I'm sorry, is there something that I I, want to touch base on? When it says that they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere, what gospel are they preaching? What gospel are they preaching? Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us what is... What has come to be accepted is like the, the essential elements, the heart of the gospel message. And in, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says the essential elements of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Well, that hasn't happened yet. These disciples have not experienced Jesus' death, his, his, his burial, or his resurrection. That hasn't happened yet. So what gospel are they preaching? Well, essentially, they're preaching something that, that, that John the Baptist preached, that be, to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. They're preaching about the kingdom of God. They're telling people about a, a kingdom that is coming, that is breaking in, that will overthrow every other kingdom that's ever existed. There's a coming kingdom, and it's God's kingdom, and you need to repent, and you need to get ready for, it, for this kingdom that's coming in. How is that kingdom coming? I don't know yet. How, is, how does that work? We don't understand yet. See, the disciples, they're, they're preaching a, a gospel that's not fully formed yet. They don't have the essential heart of the message, and yet they're still told to go and preach it. And they do. So as I said um, uh, in verse 10, they come back, um, but there is this, this part that, uh, the, that we sort of skip over. 
Verses 7 through 9, it sort of looks like a digression. It sort of looks like uh, Luke just lost his focus, and he is uh, he's, he's switching stories. And all of a sudden, instead of us looking at Jesus and his disciples, we're looking at this guy named Herod. Um, Herod the Tetrarch. Um, Herod was the son of a guy named Herod the Great, who was the ruler over all of Palestine when Jesus was born. When he died, his kingdom was divided, and uh, Herod, his son, Antipas, um, he uh, rules over this region of Galilee where Jesus does most of his ministry. Herod the Tetrarch over this region of Galilee. Now, he, uh, he, he rules by the, the authority and the power of Rome. He's, he's sort of a, a sub-king, an under-king. He actually rules on behalf of Caesar. He rules with the authority and the power of Rome. So he hears about Jesus, and he asks the question, who is this guy? And he's given three possibilities. The first possibility is that he is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now that would be troubling to him because he killed John the Baptist. The second possibility is that he's Elijah. Elijah um, didn't die. He was this Old Testament prophet. He was actually taken to heaven in, in this, this chariot driven by angels. Elijah didn't die. So it could be this is Elijah come back. Third possibility is he's some other prophet raised from the dead. Some other prophet, we don't know. Some of the prophet ways from the dead. And, and uh, Herod's response to all this is he desired to see Jesus. He desired to see Jesus. Now, I want you to consider this. He has the, the power and the authority of Rome behind him. He could have sent a detachment of troops to go get Jesus and bring him back to him. He could have taken an entourage to go and visit Jesus wherever he was. But he didn't. It says he wanted to see Jesus, but he didn't get up off his butt to go. You, you ever, um, you have a, a remote control in your hand, you watch the TV, and the batteries of the remote control are dead? And so instead of getting up and changing the batteries, or instead of get up changing the channel by hand, you just sit there and watch something you don't really want to watch? Of course not. Nobody does that. Right? But, but this, is, this is Herod. This is Herod. He, he wants to see Jesus but not actually bad enough to get up and go, right? And so we're meant to see this in contrast to what we see in verses 18 through 20. Uh, it says that now that it, it happened that he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. <clears throat> then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Uh, this is not a digression. Luke is purposely putting this in here in order to contrast Herod's question with Jesus' question about who he is. We're meant to put these questions side by side and see that the answers are almost identical. There's three answers that are getting, and, and, and notice they're all supernatural answers. Right? They're, they're answers that sort of defy physical, uh, natural capabilities, right? That John is either raised from the dead or that Elijah has returned or that another prophet has been raised from the dead. Like all three of these possibilities are supernatural possibilities. In other words, this Jesus, whoever he is, he's not just a man. He's not just simply some mortal. Like this guy is special and there's something divine or, 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 or some sort of God power that's surrounding and making him uh, step onto the scene. But he's not just a man. But, but the story with the disciples goes one step further, and Jesus asks his, his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. 
This is a powerful revelation. Uh, Christ is, is the Greek word for the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew word Messiah. He's, he's saying, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're, the, you're the, the king of kings. You're the prophet of prophets. You're the priest of priests. You're the one we've been waiting for. It's a power declar- powerful declaration of faith. And, and we're meant to look at these two statements and, re- and realize here is Herod with all the power and the authority of Rome. And he wants to see Jesus, but not really. And here are these, these poor, powerless men who have given up everything to follow Jesus. And they're learning and they're growing and they're discovering who he actually is. We're meant to see this, this growth in the development of their, their faith. Have they gotten it right all the time? Have they gotten it perfect? Is their faith fully formed? No. In fact, we're going to see them mess up quite a bit. But we're meant to see this, this invitation to us to join them in following after Jesus. So, uh, Jesus, uh, the disciples have come back from their, their mission trip and he's gathered them together and his intention is to, to spend some time with them, but he's interrupted. If you'll notice, uh, as we go through Luke, Luke, Jesus is interrupted a lot and he doesn't seem to mind. He's interrupted and, um, and the, these crowds come to him. Well, let's just read it. Look at verse 11. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So it's not like the crowds come to him and he's like, hey, I'm really sorry. Like I, I intend to spend some time with my disciples today. We have a meeting set and planned for now. Come back tomorrow. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, welcome. We, we hear those words of Isaiah coming through Jesus. Welcome, come, come and, and seek me and find me while, you can, while, while I'm still available, while I'm still present with you. Welcome. And, and he desires to heal them. You know, the, Jesus healed people because he wanted to demonstrate his power to heal us from, from our greatest needs, to give us what we truly need spiritually. And, and we need this kingdom of God that he's bringing. This new reality, this new existence, this new kingdom and this new king. Like we need this kingdom of God more than we need anything else. And so Jesus is always preaching this kingdom, but he's welcoming these people because because he loves these people. Look at the disciples' response, though. It's not the same. The disciples' response, verse 12, now the day began to wear away, and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Send them away. First of all, why are they giving Jesus a command? Like, is their power and authority like going to their head all of a sudden? Jesus, send them away. Secondly, like, have they just forgotten what's happened? Right? Jesus gives them power and authority, sends them empty-handed to the people to trust the people for, for hospitality that God would provide through them. Now the situation is reversed. The people are coming to them, empty-handed and in need, and the question is, will God provide for them the way that God provided for us? They've forgotten already. And I love Jesus' answer here. He, he essentially says, well, you take care of it. He says, you give them something to eat. You feed them. See, the day is coming when Jesus will ascend back into heaven and he won't, there won't, he won't be with them physically anymore. His spirit will be in them, yes. But it will be these people's job to feed 
the gospel and the kingdom to the rest of the world. You feed them. This is their new responsibility. Well, they're thinking in in purely physical terms. All they have is five loaves of bread and two fish, which is not enough to feed 5,000 men. Luke says 5,000 men, which means there were probably a lot more than that that were not counted because they're women and children. Who knows how many people were there that day? Five loaves and and two bread are not going to be enough to, to, to feed them. And so they're wondering, should we go into the towns to buy more food? And Jesus says, just have them sit down. Bring me the food. He blesses it, and then he begins to tear it apart. He begins to break it into pieces. And he gives it to them, and they give it to the people. And they're fed. Now, I love this. Verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and they were satisfied. It's not like they all ate and it was a nice snack and they were hungry 15 minutes later. Like, they were all ate and they were satisfied. They all ate and they were stuffed to the rafters. Like, they were satisfied completely through Jesus' provision for them. And then the scene closes with with, uh, there being leftovers. There's 12 baskets of broken pieces. And we'll come back to that at, at the end. But it's significant that we see that. Jesus, he welcomes these people when the disciples want to send them away. He teaches, he preaches, but ultimately he feeds and he satisfies them so completely in the picture of this meal. What did the disciples learn from that? Well, uh, we already uh, covered verses 18 through 20 where Jesus asked the question about who the people say he is and uh, and Peter's response. Um, Look at verse 21, how Jesus responds after uh, Peter says, you're the Christ. He says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Uh, You're wondering how the kingdom is going to come in. How is this kingdom going to be established? If there is a great chasm between humanity and, and God because of sin that we've made, how does that chasm get crossed? What is going to be the thing that that allows the kingdom of God to come in? And Jesus says, my death and my resurrection. I'm going to take care of sin. I'm going to take care of death. The things that separate us from God, I'm going to die. Now, this is the first time Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. There's a significant shift in the book of Luke. Uh, There's one more important stop along the way. And after that stop, they're headed toward Jerusalem. And Jesus is headed towards his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. He's set in his path and going out. This is the first time he tells his disciples that. They don't understand. It doesn't say that here, but the next time um, he tells them this, we see their response, and and, and we see they, they don't get it. They still, they don't really have the heart of Jesus that welcomes people. They, they really don't understand who Jesus is and what his mission is. There's still a lot about them that's still in process, still being formed as they grow in their relationship with Jesus. Um, then look at verse 23. It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's this, this picture of what their lives are meant to be like after Jesus ascends. Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus is alluding to how it is that he's going to die with crucifixion. 
but he's, he's, he's pointing to this, this idea of them needing to die to something every day. Now, obviously, he's not talking about their physical lives, necessarily. You only have one life to, to, to give up. Jesus died only once. These disciples are not gonna be crucified, and then the next morning come back from the dead and be crucified again. When Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, he is talking about a form of death, but it's not a physical death. What is he talking about? One commentator um, says this, um, following Jesus is like a kind of death because every area of a disciple's life is radically changed. Our finances, ambitions, sexuality, entertainments, and relationships must all be brought into conformity with the wishes of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus makes the daily choice to pick up his cross, every part of that day will be impacted. He goes on to say, it's a daily activity, not merely a decision made once and left to the wayside. Dying to Jesus daily means you look at the life and the, the way that you would, you would spend it. You look at the time and the way that you would choose to spend it and you die to that and embrace time as the way God would have you spend it. You look at your, your money and you look at the way that you would choose to spend your money and then you take that before God and you ask the question, what would God have me do? You die to yourself and you live for him according to his purposes. Like everything that you have, everything that you are, from your sexuality to uh, your finances to your familial relationships, like everything is on the table. And your wishes and desires for that are killed in order to have Christ's wishes and desires for that. It's a daily dying to self. Now I want to kind of like wrap up this piece, this, this layer of welcoming. This, this invitation that, that we're, we're asked to be joining these disciples and grow with them in our knowledge and our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done because this defines who we are and how we get to live. I want to wrap up this, this idea of invitation. Okay? I think when we look at the disciples, we see a big contrast between the way that they followed Jesus and the way many Christians are assuming that they're following Jesus. I think far too many of us assume that following Jesus is something you did one day of your life. One day of your life, you said a prayer. One day of your life, you made a confession. You asked Jesus for forgiveness of sins. You know that you're gonna get to go to heaven because of him. You've accepted what he's done for you. And on that day, you became a Christian. And now the, the rest of your life is about trying to live up to a moral standard to somehow, I don't know, repay Jesus for what he's done or earn it or something. But the reality is, is there's this, this, this belief that Christians have that you follow Jesus one day of your life and that's it. And in so many ways, we act a lot more like Herod than we do true disciples. We want Jesus, but we're never actually gonna get up and go follow him. The second aspect of this is I think a lot of us, we, we look at Christians and we break people down into two categories, the professional Christian and the normal Christian. Um, uh, this last week, I was asked to um, go to a career day at a, a local Christian school this week, <clears throat> and I have to give 10, 15-minute presentations uh, to, to, to these kids about my career. 
And, and, and as soon as I agreed to do this, I immediately regretted it. Um, like, to go to career day and be like, I am a doctor. I am an engineer. I am, like, I'm a pastor, and you should really be a pastor too. And here's why. The salary, the benefits, like, the health plan, like, but, but the, there's this notion that we have that there is such a thing as a regular Christian, but then there's a professional kind of a Christian. And the regular Christian, you, you, uh, you know the gospel, but you can't really articulate it to other people. Like, you know you've been saved, but you can't really tell other people how they could be saved. Like, you, you know right and wrong and, and what you're supposed to do and live this moral life and all this, and you know you get to go to heaven and all this, this, this great stuff, but, but ultimately, it's the, it's the professional Christian. They're the ones that have the power and the authority. They're the ones who, who make disciples of Jesus. They're the ones who proclaim the gospel. They're the ones that are on the, the, the front edge of the, of, the, of the building of the kingdom of God. We have this notion that there's, there's the normal, but then there's the professional. And I fight that with every fiber of my being. Do you understand that the same power and authority that was given to those disciples that came down upon them at the day of Pentecost lives in me, but it lives in you too? The Spirit of God in you. We have to fight against this notion that somehow to be Christian just means an accepting an invitation one time and not understanding that it's a daily dying to self and embracing the Savior. Let's get down to that, that other layer, though. Uh, this, this layer of, of warning. There's a warning here. Reread verse 23 with me again. <clears throat> and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus talking about? The reality is, is there's going to be a time when he comes back. Jesus is speaking here of a time when he comes again and he's coming with power, authority, he's coming with glory, the glory of heaven. He's coming with the glory of the Father. He's coming with a, an angelic host. Like this is, this is a, 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 a bright, powerful, uh, explosive return of Jesus. That's not the way he came the first time. The first time he came quietly. The first time he came as a baby. The first time he came naked and weak and he grew up as a poor carpenter and, and, and he was a, a disrespected, rejected rabbi ultimately and ultimately suffering the ultimate shame of being nailed to a cross. Like the, the first time he comes, he's a sacrificial lamb and what Jesus is saying here is the next time I come, I will be a lion. There'll be power, there'll be glory and be on display and it'll be undeniable. And the truth is, if you're ashamed of the way I came the first time, 
then I'm going to be ashamed of you when I come a second time. See, that's the problem, isn't it? We look at this insignificant, weak rabbi nailed to a tree, and we say to ourselves, I don't need that to save me. What a foolish notion. What a foolish notion that I would need that weak, helpless lamb to save me. We're ashamed of the gospel, we're ashamed of Jesus, and we're ashamed of what he's done. Not all of us. But you see, there's this judgment that he's talking about. There's this condemnation that he's talking about. Remember at the, the beginning of the chapter where he tells his disciples, if you're not accepted in a village, if you're, if you're rejected, remember they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, and shake off the dust from your sandals as a testimony against them. It is on this judgment day that that testimony is heard. It's heard. And then there's this condemnation. Now, this is the foretelling of, of a judgment. There's foreshadowing in this passage of a different judgment. Uh, the reason why this little picture of Herod is, is talked about in 7 through 9 is not just to contrast uh, the, the answers that he's given with the answers of the disciples about who Jesus is. It's, it's also to show us foreshadowing of a first judgment. Turn with me over to Luke 23. Remember the last thing we saw in Luke 9.9 9 was, it, it says, and he sought to see him. Look at Luke 23. <clears throat> Beginning in verse six. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod wanted to see Jesus, but he never really wanted to see Jesus. And so Jesus is brought to him on, on the last day of his life before he's killed. He's brought to him in judgment. He's brought to him in condemnation. Jesus has been arrested the night before. He's been on false tried by the, the Sanhedrin, then by Pilate, now by Herod. Jesus is under condemnation. And the end result will be that he goes to the cross. And I want you to understand that the significance of this judgment day. This judgment day that Jesus is foreshadowing here through Luke. This judgment day is the righteous son of God taking on flesh and going to a punishment he did not deserve. To sit under condemnation and judgment that he did not deserve. This righteous God-man who, who suffers silently. He says nothing to Herod in his own defense. And he goes to the cross completely righteous. And he exchanged that righteousness for our sin. God's wrath is poured out on him. You see, there are two judgment days. One has already happened. Jesus has already been judged. He's already been condemned by the world. 
question before us, and this is the warning here. The question before us is, will we stand with Jesus and be condemned by the world? And just so you know, that's what it means. Jesus will never be popular, accepted, or loved by the world. Will you stand with Jesus? Will you take up your cross daily? Will you follow him? Will you die to yourself and your flesh and what the world tells you you should be living for? Will you stand with Jesus and be condemned by the world? Or will you stand with the world and be condemned by Jesus? Because you were ashamed of his gospel. Because you were ashamed of this idea that you were a sinner in need of a savior. There's a warning to be heeded here. To be either accepted or to be rejected. I want to address one verse uh, real quick before uh, we, we go into the conclusion. And that's, that's verse 27 where uh, Jesus says something that's kind of hard to understand. He says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Um, the, the problem with this is there's, there's a question over which death is Jesus talking about. Uh, the words taste death, um, they're actually mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And the context of those can either mean physical death or it can mean eternal death. What Revelation calls second death. So what does Jesus mean? Is he talking about our first physical death or is he talking about a second death, an eternal kind of death? Secondly, is he talking about, you know, when he says see the kingdom of God, is he talking about um, seeing the kingdom of God inaugurated or consummated? Inaugurated or consummated? See, uh, Jesus, when he dies, the, the kingdom of God comes in. You see, the, he dies and the curtain, remember the curtain in the temple, it, it, it's ripped from top to bottom and all of a sudden human, humanity has access now to the holy of holies, right? The kingdom of God and the presence of man, get, they get to exist together once again because Jesus has taken our place because he's taking care of sin and death for us. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God. This is the inauguration of it. And he dies and he rises and then he sends his spirit to live inside of his church. This is the beginning of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is growing and it's building and it's coming every, more and more every day. But that's the inauguration. One day there's the consummation of it. When Jesus returns again. See, in the inauguration of the kingdom of God, two things happen for you as a believer. First, you're freed from the punishment of sin. Jesus was punished for you. The, the, the acts of rebellion of your heart and the rejection and, of, of God as, 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 reigner and, as reign and ruler over your life, because of that sin, you deserve punishment, but Jesus took that punishment for you and for me. We're freed from the punishment of sin. But secondly, we're also freed from the power of sin. Because of the Holy Spirit living in you, you now have power and authority to say no to your flesh and to say no to the world and to say no to Satan's lies. Like, you know that you don't have to sin. But see, with the consummation of the kingdom, we will be freed from the presence of sin. Right now, we still live in the presence of sin. Sin is all the way around us, and it affects us every day. But one day... When the kingdom of God is consummated, when it fully comes in, no more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. Sin has no effect whatsoever in the kingdom of which we will be living in. So the question is, 
is Jesus saying um, that somebody, uh, that his disciples won't physically die until they see the inauguration of the kingdom of God? Um, and, and that happens. His disciples live to see him die. The curtain come down and the inauguration of the kingdom of God. They see the, the kingdom of God coming in. They see the sign of the Holy Spirit on, on the day of Pentecost. It could mean that. It also could mean uh, referring to second death and the consummation of the kingdom. That there are people who, uh, unfortunately, will taste second death right after they see the consummation of the kingdom of God. Uh, I think it means both. I think it means both. But here's where I, I want us to end this morning. Um, I want us to point out that before the world is condemned, Jesus was condemned. I want you to think about that. I want to go back to this, the feeding of the 5,000. Here are these people, they're coming to Jesus completely empty-handed. They bring nothing, and they're coming to take what he has. And Jesus' response is to welcome them. Where are you at this morning? How full are your hands? Are you preoccupied with protecting yourself are you preoccupied with the stuff? Are you preoccupied with the, the food and the, uh, the, the, the money? You know, this, with the change of underwear? That's a bad, that doesn't work. Anyway, but, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, we, we come and we have a bunch of stuff in our hand. We, we're, we're coming with, with all of this stuff and, and, and we're called to drop that. Will you allow God to provide for, for your needs? Will you let him take care of you? What are you coming to Jesus with this morning? And do you see that he's welcoming you? That his arms are outstretched for you? He desires that you seek him while he can still be found. Are you seeking him? Is your faith to, to, to you something that you did once, you've got your ticket into heaven, so you're good? Or is it something that you do, that you're a part of, that your, your identity is rooted in every single day of your life? That every activity, every relationship, everything is viewed through this lens of following Jesus. They came up to hand it and Jesus welcomed them. But I want us to see something about what Jesus does in meeting this need and need and fully satisfying them. There is another foreshadowing of judgment in this passage. And the foreshadowing is in the 12 baskets of broken bread. 12, if you remember from last week, it's, it's a number that, that points to power and authority. Christ's power and authority broken in submission to condemnation. He goes to the cross and he suffers and he dies so that we could be fully satisfied. All power and authority broken and given up so that we could be fully satisfied. We want to look at God and hate him because he's so judgmental. But do you see the judgment that he went through so that he could save us? Do you see that? It's beautiful. Seek him while he can be found I want to close with, uh, with this. Back in Isaiah 55 that we read together at the beginning. The passage begins with, come everyone. Come everyone. There's this invitation. 
And I hope that, that you've heard that invitation, that you've heeded that invitation, that you will every day decide to come to Jesus. But the passage ends with this, for you shall go out in joy. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. I pray this morning that when you leave here, you go out in joy and in peace. But then it says something really worshipful. It says, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. As we go into worship this morning, let's not be outdone by hills or clapping trees in worship of our God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the fact that even now you stand arms wide open to receive us. Thank you for the work of your spirit in us. Thank you for the power and authority that you've given us even though we don't feel ready for it. We don't feel mature enough to handle it. We're unsure of it. We have a lot more questions than we do answers. And yet there's so much grace that you have for us. I pray this morning that as we would leave here, we go with your joy and with your peace. But we go not to sit. We go to follow. We go to submit all of our live, lives to you. We day, lay down the life that we would choose and we pick up the life that you would choose for us. We pray this by the power of the Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, amen.